This episode of Repod is brought to you by SEO Orb, Buzzshot, Escape from Ebo Island, and Patreon supporters like you. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need a getaway from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host, PG Law. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Today's guest is Rita Orlov. In the early years of the New York City escape room scene, Rita was one of the very first game masters. In more recent years, our community knows her for her masterful tabletop puzzle games as the creator of Post Curious, producing games like Tale of Ord, The Emerald Flame, and the upcoming The Light in the Mist. Welcome, Rita. Hey guys, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to have you on. After I tested The Light in the Mist, I was like, oh man, I can't wait to talk to Rita about this game. It's gorgeous. And for those of you who have not played it, because most of you have not played it, we are not going to be spoiling anything that you wouldn't know by just looking at the art on Instagram or reading the instructions before playing so you don't have to worry about that. Before we dive into some of your more recent games, I played my first escape room back in January of 2014 at the first escape room in the U.S. east of San Francisco. It was the office at Escape the Room New York City. And Rita, you were game mastering. You were an in-room game master. And yeah, that was my first experience in escape rooms. It was also my first experience in escape rooms. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got the impression you were brand new, like you were co-game mastering with Victor over there. My official title was Assistant Clue Master, so I had not yet graduated to being an official Clue Master. (laughs) Had you even played an escape room before you took this job? Well, no. I hadn't played an escape room because there weren't any. My first day that I came to the job, they had me play the first game that was there. But it was a weird experience because it was a team building team from a company. So it was just 10 people who knew each other and then me randomly tagging onto their team so that I can experience the game before I start game mastering it. I did not do very well (laughs) at actually solving anything. I mean, I can't imagine. It sounds like such a comfortable environment. Well, I always love being locked in rooms with 10 complete strangers and my very new boss. That just sounds like a party. I have a question for you because I have long been wondering what the story was about that game. The original incarnation of The Office, it looked like it was like a temporary setup in a location that I think was actually someone's real office. And I got the impression that you guys were moving the components in and out every day. Do I do I have that right? It was someone's actual office, but our game was only open on the weekends. So it was Friday night through Sunday, and the owner would move in pieces on Friday night and then take everything out on Sunday night. But it wasn't really that much stuff. So there were a couple pieces of furniture which stayed there, I think, for the whole time. So it was mostly moving in just a couple very small set pieces, props and papers and such. I can't even imagine how many red herrings you must have encountered in that game. Not that many. Yeah, actually, no, not really, because all the stuff that was part of the real office was just moved over to the side where the clue master sat. And it was pretty clear where the game ended. It was almost like 
there was a stage and an audience area in a, in a weird way. Yeah, there was like a magic line where you and Victor were sitting on the other side and you, you were like, anything on this side is not part of the game. Don't worry about it. Yeah, exactly. Before we dig into your upcoming project, The Light in the Mist, let's talk about the Kickstarter that you're currently fulfilling, The Emerald Flame. I absolutely loved this game and can't wait to see a production copy, which I get the sense is taking a lot more time, effort, and money than expected on account of global pandemic, followed by supply chain and shipping issues. Can you give us some insights into what the scoop is on the Emerald Flame? Sure. Well, the scoop is actually dreadfully boring. It's really just endless delays due to COVID, staff shortages, supply chains. People can't get their hands on paper and cardboard. I think, thankfully, that the paper aspect didn't affect us too much. And the game was design ready many months ago. But because the manufacturers overbooked themselves with so many projects and there were so many delays, basically just a backlog of a lot of things that keeps pushing things back. And of course, the prices of shipping are absolutely insane right now. They're double what they were in April and basically triple of what they were before the pandemic. So that's a pretty scary thing. And Thankfully, our backers have been chipping in to help us, and our Kickstarter did well enough to cover the costs that we didn't foresee on this, but it's definitely a very scary thing for a lot of small publishers. I have a jewelry business, and just to give people an idea of why certain things have gone up, I manufacture in China, and in order to save on you know taxes and other things, I ship out of Hong Kong. So before the pandemic, the manager of the factory would hand carry everything across the border himself. And then we would ship from Hong Kong, right? Problem now is because of quarantine, he has a quarantine 14 days when he gets to Hong Kong. When he crosses the border back over now, he has a quarantine for another 14 days. This means anybody that crosses the border is out of commission for 28 days. Now I can't afford to have my goldsmith be out of commission for 28 days. So instead I have to hire a special courier that does this for a lot of different packages. Their man has to be out of commission for 28 days. Now there's a lot of different companies shipping in to help cover it, but that is part of why costs have increased. Small things like that, that it's like, I didn't even think about that having an impact. Yeah, and you can't exactly carry a 40 foot container <laughs> across to Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, well, this is, yeah, it's a separate yeah. issue. Yeah, the Emerald Flame is just, it's a pretty big box and it's a bit hefty. So it takes up a lot of space and that really increases the cost tremendously because you can only fit so many games on a pallet. You can only fit so many pallets in a container. There's a lot of, restrictions that the cost increases have, you know, multiplicatively impacted. Rita sent me a copy of The Emerald Flame before this interview, and I just want to take a little bit of time to talk about the game for people that are listening to this that might not even know what it is, but it is a narrative puzzle game. And there are a lot of components in this game. Like, I could not believe how many different items you had in there. There's letters, but there's props. Like, you have a lot of physical props in the game. Are those all made at different factories and then sent to one place to be assembled? Are they all made at one place? Some of them are made at different factories. Different vendors will make certain pieces and then they 
gets sent to the main manufacturer that assembles them all into the same box. So there are a handful of components that are completely outside the scope of normal board games. So these board game manufacturers, when I first started trying to find somebody, a lot of people were like, we have no idea how to make this. Why? <laughs> like They just didn't even understand how it was part of the game. So to some extent, I actually had to even do a bit of my own research and find out like, how to get a custom rosary made. And so they ended up having to get a vendor that was making jewelry so that they could make it to these custom specifications in order to put it in the game. So there's a bunch of things that are outsourced, but then they're all assembled in one place. The components that are in Emerald Flame are unusually specific, I think especially from a manufacturing standpoint. Did you have language barrier issues trying to convey the form and function? To a degree. The manufacturer that I'm currently working with, I have a rep in the US, so I was able to communicate pretty effectively with her and she communicated with the factory. But when I was just trying to accumulate quotes, there were a lot of points in which, I don't know if this was necessarily a language barrier or just the manufacturer deciding that they can quote me for something that isn't the thing that I asked for. But there were some components where I would specify it has to be this size and this is its function. It needs to do this in the game. And they'd say, okay, fine. But then they would quote me for something that didn't actually do those things or didn't actually look the way that I wanted. And so there was a point where I said, well, this seems like a little bit low of a price for the thing that I specified, because I know that this is a complicated thing to do. And then they would say, oh, we just quoted you for this basic thing. And I had to say, no, but it needs to fulfill all of these specific things because it's for a puzzle. And if it doesn't fulfill its function in the game, then it's completely useless. I've learned you have to be really specific. Uh, and it sounds like you were. And even then, they kind of thought they knew better than you or something. Like, no, she doesn't want to do that. We'll do this. It'll save her some money. Yeah, definitely the saving money thing. Because the Emerald Flame is meant to be a high-quality product with kind of more realistic-looking props. And so one of the components is these etched acrylic pieces that are supposed to kind of look like glass slides. And so I said please quote me for these laser etched acrylic pieces. And then they quoted me for plastic sheets that were printed on. And I was like, really? The acrylic is so low? And they were like, no, these are plastic printed on sheets. And I'm like, this is not the thing that I asked for. And they're like, but this is cheaper. And I had to say, but this is not the thing that I asked for. <laughs> I, I have the same issue with my factory where like their cultural mindset is so different. That's their value structure, right? Like they're constantly being told use the cheapest possible components. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. But it's also interesting because their pricing is so different from what I expect in the US that there are certain things where they're like, this will be more expensive to produce. And I'm like, okay, how much more will it be? And they're like, 15 cents. And I'm like, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's totally fine. You can make this look significantly better. 
and I will pay you that 15 cents. Being an indie game designer, like not only are you designing, but now you have to play the part of manufacturer and source all of these factories and deal with over, like I, it, it, there's so many moving parts to this. I couldn't even imagine. Yeah, I'm pretty much doing five people's jobs at the moment, but that's just like, you know, everybody says it's so hard to be a business owner. You have no idea if you don't own a business. And now I know what they mean. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about your product that is kind of going the other direction, at least in terms of production complexity. You have The Light in the Mist coming up soon. You teamed up with Jack Fallow of Cryptogram Puzzle Post in the UK to create a custom bepuzzled tarot deck packed with gorgeous art, and it's all wrapped in a heartfelt story. How did this collaboration come about? At some point a couple years ago, I started a little makers group on Facebook when this was still a pretty niche market in terms of the tabletop puzzle games. And we encountered some people that were very cagey about talking to other creators. And so we wanted to kind of create a community of people that were willing to share information and support each other. So we made this group and I was a fan of Jack's work already. So I reached out and said, hey, we made this maker group. Do you want to join? And we kind of uh, started talking and we hit it off. And then we met at the Up the Game conference in 2019 and talked about maybe doing some kind of collaboration. And I brought up the idea of making a tarot deck. And Jack had said that they actually had thought about making a tarot deck for a long time, but didn't feel like there was any reason to in the sense that there were just so many tarot decks out there and what would it mean to make a tarot deck that was different and that would stand out from everything that already exists. And the answer was make it a puzzle game. <laughs> so we decided to work on that together. Without getting into any spoiler territory, I have played a whole bunch of card deck based puzzle games over the last few years. And my complaint has always been that these things never feel like they have to be a deck of cards. They feel like they could just be in a puzzle book. They're just puzzles that happen to be printed on cards. It, it was like a deck of cards, that, and, it, and then it was like, by the way, here's a puzzle with your deck of It was like a Happy Meal. It was like, here's your toy that came with your meal. Like, here's yeah. your puzzle that came with your deck of cards. And I'm like, I thought the game was going to be incorporated into the deck, right? Yeah. This game justifies its existence as a puzzle game on a deck of cards. It has to be on a deck of cards. If it was printed in a puzzle book, it just wouldn't work. It'd be something completely different. And I think that, along with the incredible art, I think Jack, in my opinion, is a curve breaker in terms of the level of illustration that we see in puzzles. So the way that you guys have interwoven the art with the puzzles, with the narrative... And with the whole idea of a tarot deck and so much of the symbolism behind the tarot, which is very important to a lot of people, it is a masterpiece. And I don't say that lightly. I was constantly like, oh my God, this is so amazing. And the way they all interweave with each other, it's so incredible. As long as we're just dumping adoration on you, Rita. <laughs> this game is so unopinionated. Right from the get-go, the rule book tells you, you can read this as a story and ignore all the puzzles. You can ignore the story and solve the puzzles, 
Or you can just own a tarot deck and ignore the story and the puzzles altogether. And you can kind of drift in and out of that as much as you want to whatever degree that you want. And it all works, which is remarkable because each individual track is so strong on its own. It's a gorgeous deck. It's a great puzzle game. The story is wonderful. Yeah, that was really our intention is to make something that wove all three of those things together, but would still maintain a modularity and a versatility for people. So I know that some people are just, they just want to plow through some puzzles. They don't really want to read a story. So that option is available to them. And I've had some people who were pretty new to puzzles who ended up enjoying the story a little bit more because they, they felt like that was a reward for all of their work for solving a puzzle was to get a piece of the story. And, you know, some people don't really care about having a game. Maybe they just want a tarot deck. We were okay with all those things. But I wanted to comment on what you were saying about it being embedded into a deck of cards because that was really something that I was thinking about when I started designing it. And the question that I asked was, how do I use this medium effectively to create puzzles that make sense that they're on cards? Because it was so much more limiting than anything that I've made before, where with Emerald Flame and Taylor Horde, it was sort of like a blank canvas. I can include letters and maps and props and could be kind of anything. And it was really more of an exercise in invention, whereas having this kind of design constraint was an exercise in how do I use these limited resources and limited materials in order to do something that is still interesting and actually uses those things to heighten the experience of just the fact that you're using cards. I feel like almost Every creator that we've interviewed on here, their biggest breakthrough came because they were working with a very limited set of circumstances. It also stemmed a bit from kind of disappointment in some other games that I thought would be more embedded into the cards, but then weren't. And whenever I play a game that I feel like had a missed opportunity to do something more, where I expected the intention to have a different result. My design brain is always running and thinking about how would I make this? So I took those things that I felt I was missing in those games and wanted to improve on that and make something that utilized that aspect rather than just had it be kind of a circumstance. I really feel that because as a reviewer, there are times where I have to sit down and say to myself, okay, I have to review the game I played, not the game I wanted it to be. So often I'm playing these games and I'm like, oh, this could be so much more. If you did this and this and this, it would be, you know, if you made these two items actually have an interaction between each other, it would be so cool. And this game really did that for me. And we haven't had a chance to talk since you sent this to me, but the way that Lisa and I played it was we played it between two and four puzzles a night for a week or so. And it was just constantly sitting out on our table and we would sit down, we would play until we felt like we had solved enough and then we would go on with our rest of our day. And it was so much fun having it just be there, just can go there and have a little snack. We didn't feel like we were committed to playing through an arc or through a particular chapter. The puzzles were very discreet. 
we knew what components were part of what puzzle. We knew when we had started, we knew when we had finished. The time we spent on it was always very focused. And I have, I mean, what I think really is the highest compliment that I can give to a tabletop puzzle game is that even the ones that I have loved in the past, when finishing, the overwhelming sensation that Lisa and I have both felt has always been a little bit of relief. Even when we love the game, we're like, okay, we're done. We've hit the end of that journey. It was fun. We're not doing this one anymore. And when we finished The Light in the Mist, the reaction that Lisa and I both had, and we talked about it like an hour later, was we were a little bit sad that it was done. And that to me is perfect. I would rather a vacation end a day or two early than go on a day or two too long. And that's kind of how I feel about my games. And so this game gave me a feel that a game has never given me. I want to thank you for that. Wow, that really is the biggest compliment, David. Thank you. I, I totally agree. I feel like we could keep going on. I'm like, should we save this for a spoilers club, David? <laughs> yeah, another time we can really dig in. I'd like to thank our sponsor, SEO Orb. SEO Orb is a digital marketing agency focused on the escape room industry. The owner, Piyush, is a serious escape room fan who understands the nature of the business and can work with you to refine your web presence. He can help you set and meet your search engine optimization as well as your marketing goals. One of the things I noticed at Recon, the reality escape convention was so many escape room owners were really interested in learning about marketing, learning about how to market, what a search engine optimization even meant. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it's one of these things that's so essential to modern businesses, but most people don't really know what it is. One of the things I really like about Piyush is his willingness to help teach his clients and really make sure that they are understanding not just what he's doing, but why he's doing it. Because it's a process. And the more he can educate you as a client, the more you're gonna be able to achieve together. Besides, you can't do it all alone. I say hire a professional. I agree. We're looking at working with Piyush on Room Escape Artists to help improve our presence because we feel like we've taken it as far as we can in terms of SEO without bringing on someone who really knows what's up. So do what we did. Give Piyush a call. See if he can help your business out. You can learn more at seoorb.com. Details in the show notes. Peter, you raise another point that I want to talk about, which is Rita, your first post-curious game, The Tale of Ord, was a massive puzzle epic that took more than a dozen hours to play. And for me, it changed a lot about the way that I think about tabletop puzzle games. With each subsequent release, your games are getting shorter and tighter. And I'm curious how your thinking and approach to design has evolved with experience. I mean, for one thing, just getting player feedback is really helpful. But of course, my design sense has also evolved and improved. So I have a much better understanding, both through playing other games, but also through watching more people play my games, what is an effective way to design a puzzle and what thing is going to be the most fun for players. And if I designed the Tale of Ord right now, I think it would take significantly less time to finish. 
and I've been thinking about, you know, if I ever release like a second edition of it, there's definitely a lot of things that I would change based on the things that I've learned since then. And the truth is that when I play games myself, I also don't necessarily want a game that's super long. So in a way, it's a bit counterintuitive that I keep making games that are at least six hours of playtime. But I guess I feel like it's really hard to tell a substantial story in a very short amount of time. And I like to you know, dive into characters a little bit more and create deeper, multi-layered puzzles and a bigger variety of puzzles. And I think instead of making a bunch of shorter games that skim the surface of a certain theme or set of characters, I like to exhaust everything, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like I sort of kind of throw everything at the wall and see what sticks and then tighten that up as much as possible into something that is cohesive and feels good and flows well but still has the kind of depth pushing through all of the ideas that I have about this. And now that I've made this tarot game that has all of the things I want to put into a tarot game, I don't need to make another tarot game, if that makes sense. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense to me. You have a finite amount of design space in something like a tarot deck and the story that you're telling within it. So you go and you put everything into it you find the things that work, and then that's the product. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, I've been consciously trying to make things that are more accessible to a wider audience. So the Tale of Word was hard and harder than I intended it. At the time, I was trying to design the kind of game that I wanted to play, and there weren't really that many products on the market at the time, and it felt like there was a gap between totally narrative experiences and one hour escape the room in a box or like exit type games. And I wanted something that was a little bit more involved. The one thing I had played at the time that felt more involved was Black Letter Labs, which was really interesting, but also way harder than the Tale of Ward. Like it was a huge struggle for me to get through. So I wanted to make something that was challenging for enthusiasts, but didn't feel impossible. But in retrospect, I would add a lot more signposting into the Tale of Ward. And so that has informed my later designs in just trying to make things clearer and more streamlined for players. Seems reasonable. And Black Letter Labs, for those who have not ever experienced one, is famously hard. Lisa and I were loaned a copy. We looked at it. We tried to solve it. And I think we could have, but we ultimately just decided that this was not worth the amount of time that it was going to require for us to grind through it because we have a giant stack of puzzles to solve at any given point in time. It was very process heavy. Rita, you mentioned that you may do a second run of Tale of Ord at some point. I want to take a moment and talk about its limited run and handmade nature, especially that first batch that you made. I believe it's the first tabletop puzzle game that has an aftermarket value that is significantly higher than what you sold it for, which is an interesting phenomenon and sort of its own milestone in any kind of product category. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, I think it's kind of an exception to say that in the sense that there were maybe like two people who 
tried to sell it for a higher than market value. Personally, whenever I have played a game, if I choose to resell it, I'm always going to sell it for under the market value because I just want other people to play it. I feel a bit weird <laughs> about people selling it over the MSRP price, but it's theirs to do with whatever they want. So I guess my view on it is kind of irrelevant at that point, except, <laughs> you know, just a mild discomfort because I just want more people to play it. And I don't really want people to be forced to pay even more than the original price for it. I think it adds to your brand, though. There's a certain mystique there in knowing that people are really valuing the game. There is. It's nice to know that people value it, but I think overpricing things because of scarcity is not really a thing that I personally appreciate. It just feels like a little pretentious, and I don't really want to be known for, <laughs> you know, having like, oh, this is such a rare item. Before we move on from Tale of Ord, you did a lot of impressive things with that first game, but your hint system and you've applied this to all of your work since, has been the biggest thing that stood out to me. It's why we asked you to speak at Recon this year on hinting. And without rehashing the talk, which we'll link in the show notes, what is your philosophical approach to hinting? To me, the most important things with hinting is your goal is to keep people feeling satisfied about solving the puzzles. And I've encountered so many games that have either no hints or two hints, and then they give you the solution, or they have some useful hints, but then they don't give you the solution. And I hate abandoning games because I can't move forward in it or having to go and ask somebody how to solve something. So really the origin of why the hint system ended up being the way that it is, is because every time I played a game that didn't have a hint system that felt like it was put together well enough for me to enjoy the game to its fullest extent. If I needed a nudge in the right direction, it would either not give me enough of a nudge or give me too far of a nudge. So I really wanted to create something that would be multi-stepped and give people the opportunity to solve the puzzle on their own as much as possible. But if they needed the help or if they needed to verify something, especially because I do a fair number of multi-step puzzles, I think just uh, granularity is the way to get good hints and write them from the player's perspective, essentially. One of the things that you have done from the beginning that I love in your hint systems is that for me and Lisa, more often than not, if we're taking a hint, it is either immediately or almost at the end. We either couldn't figure out where to get started, what thread to pull on, and we need a little bit of a nudge to get going. We don't want you to give away the puzzle. We just want to know where do we start. And a lot of people have figured that out. A lot of people give a good first hint. The thing that we consistently were finding we were getting stuck on in tabletop escape rooms is that we would get like 98% of the way. We were almost done. We were, we were almost there, and there was just some nuance we were missing. And there was almost never a hint for that. There was always a gap between the last hint and the solution, if there even was a solution. And you just never get lazy with your hints along the way. There is always another hint 
until you've squeezed everything out of hints and you have to give the solution. And I, I love that so much because it has ensured that we actually get to solve these puzzles and we don't have them fizzle out on us as we are almost finished with them. You hint in minuscule increments, which is awesome because when I look at hints, I look at them the way I'll watch like scary scenes in a movie. Like I peek really fast. Maybe I'll catch one small whiff, but if in case it spoils everything, I don't see it all. Or like I'll cover it and like uncover it word by word. And I'm like, okay, is this, is this giving away the whole game? I don't have to be afraid to do that when I'm going through your hint system. It's interesting watching people use it too when I'm playtesting because a lot of times they would find themselves on step three, like hint three in the progression. And they might read those three hints and know that they are in the right place. And then somehow they would magically figure it out without actually looking at the next hint that helps them get to the next point, which is sort of remarkable to me, but I just love that because all it did was confirm that they were doing the right thing. And somehow that makes something click that lets them figure out what to do next. I think getting that confidence, if you have a hunch and you have a way to get it confirmed, that makes you feel more bold. It makes you realize, okay, yeah, I, I did get that. I am able to do this. It's like a kid looking back at their parents and their parents being like, yeah, you got this. Go do, go do the thing. <laughs> I think that there's something really good about it. And I think your hints are very non-judgmental. And I'm always encouraging people to use hints, especially in tabletop escape games, because you, they're the only way to keep you on the rails. So I just love the way you approach it. And if you haven't seen Rita's talk from Recon, do yourself a favor and watch it. She delivered that with Summer Herrick from Locurio, who is really an inevitable guest on this podcast. It's fantastic. And I think it really shows the depth to hinting that I don't think a lot of people, players and creators, realize is there. to thank our sponsor, Telescape by Buzzshot. Telescape is an advanced inventory system and game creation tool used by escape rooms worldwide. Whether you're creating a live avatar experience or a completely standalone point and click online game, Telescape can help bring your online escape experience to life. This week we're featuring 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Novel Escape. This is an avatar game from Austin, Texas. I played it in real life. I absolutely adored this game. This was a dark horse game that we didn't really know what we were expecting when we walked in and just fell in love with it. It didn't have a huge budget, but it was executed with so much love and passion. And that makes me so happy when I'm playing an escape game. The Hivemind played it virtually and loved it. If you aren't near Austin, Texas, you should check this one out. I think you're gonna wanna play it virtually. You can learn more at telescape.com. Details in the show notes. So let's dive into some of the things that influence you. Before escape rooms, you studied art and furniture design, which I can feel in everything you create, especially some of what I call precision puzzles that you produce. Puzzles that require very precise placement of things, I haven't seen many other creators attempt these, or at least with the tolerances that you have. Every time you do this, I feel like it's a magic trick. Like, how could this work? 
what's your process here? And how do you manage to produce this effect and ensure that the interactions work consistently? Part of the answer is obsession. <laughs> is just obsession with precision. But the process is usually if I'm doing something that requires placing things, I'll often just physically draw out what the pieces are or like what the placements are by hand. And I'll test that out and then I'll scan it into the computer, do a vector drawing in a program where I overlay the components that need to be overlaid or match each other. Then I'll print that out and test it to make sure that it works. And if it doesn't work, then I'll make micro adjustments on the computer and basically repeat that process until I know that it's as accurate as it can possibly be. And, you know, sometimes there's still a little bit of room for error, but if I'm finding that 98% of people are solving it, then that's, that's the best that I can do. I, I felt like I went through a lot of personal growth playing Emerald Flame because I'm like, oh, I can't just be lazy and try to eyeball everything. Like, I let me <laughs> get out like a straight edge or something, you know? Yeah, I, I do actually put in mechanisms sometimes that are going to make sure that things aren't guessable. If you need to use a ruler, you got to use a ruler. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I saw you do this in a game, my initial reaction as I was doing it was like, this can't possibly be the right answer. There's, there's too much precision involved in this for this to be produced in more than a one-off or something like that. And when it worked, I remember just being like, oh, wow, she's a witch. Burner. <laughs> I'm <laughs> curious which one you're talking about. I, I can't even remember what puzzle it was. I, I think it was something in Tale of Ord, because I remember experiencing something similar in Emerald Flame. And instead, as I was doing it, I was like, oh, no, this has to be the answer. Rita made this. Rita, you're a well-traveled and impressively experienced escape room player. Is there a game that has been notably special to you or changed the way you think about these experiences? Well, I mean, the most notable, and I think anyone who saw the Terpeka ratings knows this, is probably the Dome in the Netherlands. That game, I walked out and I was just like, wow, this is innovating on the medium. And that is something that I love to see and I don't see too often. But I think a lot of the games in the Netherlands really impressed me, and especially their use of actors, which I've seen a little bit in other places, but it feels a bit more evolved there. Like I think the Amsterdam catacombs were also pretty surprising to me because I found that game absolutely terrifying, but I loved it so much that that and the dome are like two of the games that I want to go play again. And I've never felt that way about other escape rooms. So I'm excited to do that when I go back and it'll be like a three year gap in between then. So I'll probably have forgotten at least most of the puzzles by then. European escape room tour when? Love to make it happen. After Montreal. <laughs> You're an avid tabletop gamer and you grew up playing chess starting at age three. So well before Queen's Gambit got everyone into the game. When you're playing competitive tabletop games, do you find yourself leaning on modes of thinking learned from growing up on chess? Yeah, I'm definitely a sucker for abstract strategy games. So a lot of thinking ahead and moves 
is my jam <laughs> when it comes to tabletop games. So probably like the favorite games I would list to you are all abstract strategy, even though I, I enjoy games with, you know, more theme and story and things like that. And obviously I love puzzles, but I think, yeah, that has definitely influenced the way I play competitive games and <laughs> the competitive spirit that I try to kind of push down when I'm playing against other people. Oh, do I feel that? For me, probably like the seminal game for me was playing Magic the Gathering, which I still play. And I am much happier playing against strangers online than I am against my actual friends. Because when I play against strangers online, I can just go for the jugular every time and never feel bad about it. Whereas when I invite friends over to my home, it's like, am I really going to just savage you in this game that I own and you just learned how to play? Like, am I, am I really that person? Like, I kind of am, but I don't want to be. <laughs> yeah, it feels a bit bad when that happens. I'm always hoping <laughs> that it's that it almost that it doesn't go that way. But on the bright side, it teaches my little brothers how to lose well. When we were kids and we learned about like betting and poker and blackjack and asked our father if he would play with us and bet for money. And he just took all of our money. And when it all finished, we were like, can we can we have our you know quarters back? And he was like, no, this is gambling. You lose, you lose that. Well, that's an important lesson to learn, I guess. Super important lesson. I am very thankful that he taught us that lesson. I never grew up in an environment where anybody ever... Um, played games softly, it was always go hard, destroy your opponent. I was like, I don't know, 10 years old um, on vacation and we were playing, like my dad was teaching us how to play poker and he he got like four sevens. We're like, whoa, like that's so cool. And then the next hand, he got four sevens again. <laughs> we were like, how is he doing this? And he did it again on the next hand. Yeah, magician. And we were <laughs> Let me tell you, this was my first foray into magic, and I was just amazed. And eventually, he showed us how he was dealing from like the bottom of the deck. But uh, like that was kind of a mean trick. <laughs> <laughs> He's kept me on my toes, that's for sure. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Escape from Mebo Island by Sherlock in Amsterdam. Escape from Mebo Island is a unique, live, virtual escape room played through a web browser. The impressive technology uses a first-person view and creates an adorable avatar using your own webcam video. It's a ton of fun, and it's fantastic for anyone from families to corporate events. So you guys have heard us talk about how much fun Escape from Mebo Island is. If you're an escape room owner and you have corporate groups looking to book virtual games. Escape from Mebo Island has an affiliate program. It's super easy to use and you can make, make a little extra money without having to develop your own game. It scales up and scales down. You need to have a whole bunch of games running. It can handle that. When those big corporate groups call up and you need to have an answer for them, this is a really good solution to that problem. For everyone else, if you'd like to give Escape from Mebo Island to try, Repod listeners get a 20% discount using the code MarvinRules. You can learn more at MeboIsland.com. Details and discount code in the show notes. Rita, you're 
very into rock climbing, the indoor kind being from Brooklyn. Bouldering or low height climbs where you have to traverse a portion of the wall are frequently referred to as problems, with the implication being that the climber has to solve the movement sequence. This is an incredibly appropriate hobby for you. I'm curious if climbing has influenced your approach to puzzle design. That's a really good question. I think calling it a problem is really accurate. I mean, some, of course, some of the easier ones are more straightforward, but it's really fun to kind of figure out what to do. You start and then there's definitely a good amount of failure in it. So you have to get used to not finishing things and falling. And sometimes you manage to finish something in a session. And sometimes it takes like three weeks of trying a problem before you can finish it. And sometimes it's a matter of strength, but sometimes it's just a matter of figuring out the right move. And maybe you're trying something for two weeks and then one day you realize that actually if you put your foot in this other position, then that allows you to reach just a little bit further in order to get to the next thing. So I guess in that sense, it requires a little bit of creative thinking and trying different things and being willing to think outside the box a little bit in terms of what your process is. I don't know if it's directly influenced my puzzle design, but I think the way that you think about it maybe is just trying to step out of the conventional a little bit. So it's not really interesting to always be doing the same thing. It's not that interesting to be climbing a ladder, but when you're trying to solve a problem that requires you to move in a really weird way, sometimes it takes a little bit to wrap your head around it or figure out exactly what you need to do. But once you do, it's so satisfying. And I always like to put a bit of an interesting twist. If I'm using kind of a more known puzzle type, then I always want to make sure that I'm doing something to it that makes it different, that isn't something that I've seen before. And just like that, it's always exciting to try new problems when <laughs> there's new settings at the gym. In rock climbing gyms, do people get touchy about like spoilers on bouldering walls? Is that a thing? Sometimes, actually, yeah. Like you don't, I mean, sometimes it's really helpful to watch other climbers when you can't figure something out and you're at the point where I just want to know how it's even possible to do this because sometimes you look at problems and your reaction is just like, I don't even understand how a human being can get from, from point A to point B over here. It doesn't seem like there's enough for you to do that. And then you watch somebody with an amazing athletic feat in doing that. And then at least you know that it's possible, but there are people who will want to figure things out for themselves. And so they don't want to be told uh, what it is. There is a thing called a beta, which is sort of the intended way of solving the problem. And so there's generally always more than one beta because some people will solve it in a different way. And especially if you're tall, sometimes you can just totally skip moves that short people have to do like three moves in order to make up for that one move. So everybody's going to have their own beta, but there's an intended beta that the setter has. So yeah, there are some people who don't like spoilers. I usually try to figure something out on my own before I watch other people do it, just to kind of give it a chance and see if I can figure it out. But it is considered bad etiquette to just 
give unsolicited data, right? Yeah. Like actually the other day I was watching somebody try to do something, which I had tried so many times on that problem before I figured out what to do. And it took me a while to figure out on that one what to do because it was very weird. And I asked him like, do you want me to tell you the beta for this? And he was just like, no, I'll figure it out. And I was like, okay, just in case. <laughs> this is one of the things I like about climbing is I do find it generally though, to be a very friendly community of people and it's not like if you just go to the gym everyone's like a little solitary island but i find like at climbing gyms people chatter and talk about yeah. how they solve things or oh have you solved this do you know how to do it and people share advice and you know yeah. generally speaking i like anything that's cooperative yeah everyone's very happy to see other people succeed so even if they just see somebody finish they're like hey nice good job or like oh i'm working on this too where are you stuck so I've definitely talked to way more strangers at the climbing gym than at any other sort of communal space. So what comes next for you? More games. <laughs> Always more games. Well, once we fulfill Emerald Flame and get the light in the mist going, I've got a little... Uh, so last year I released a very limited seasonal game for Christmas called Whisper in the Woods which I made um, assembled at home kind of in the way that I did with Tale of Ord, and it was a limited edition of 40 pieces. And so I'm working on something for this year, and that I'm probably going to make some more than 40, but I've commissioned an artist that I really like to create some illustrations for it, so I'm really excited to be working with her. And I've got an idea for a game brewing for next year, which will probably be the sort of next big post-curious release. But I can't say too much about that yet, except for that it is coming. Okay. Do a deck of cards! A deck of cards! <laughs> it will not be a deck of cards. It will be, it will be very three-dimensional. That is what I can say about it. Mm, okay. PG pulling some information out. I, I, I have some guesses, but I don't want to spoil anything, so I won't when, even keep Wow, trying. I want to know what your guesses are. Is it is it a chess game? No. Okay. <laughs> it will involve building things. Sometimes with not right angles. That's all I'll say. Hmm. Can we post that? Sure. When is the uh, Light in the Mist Kickstarter going live? The Light in the Mist Kickstarter went live on September 21st, so you can back it now. Where can people find you on social media? You can find me at PostCurious on Instagram and on Facebook and at GetPostCurious on Twitter. And if people sign up for your mailing list, they can get free puzzles, and they're, they're good puzzles. Yes, if you go to the website, you can go to the free puzzles section. We've got a whole archive of all the free puzzles that we've released over the years, and... There's also free puzzles going up during the Kickstarter campaign once a week. So those will eventually end up in the archive. But if you solve those and submit your solutions, you can also win an original ink drawing of one of the cards by Jack. So highly recommend solving them because the artwork is amazing. During the Kickstarter, Rita pulls up in her truck that's labeled free puzzles. Just come onto the truck. It's fine. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rita. A quick announcement. The Recon 21 Day 2 Talks are now up on the Room Escape Artist YouTube channel, along with the Day 1 Talks. 
So go check out our YouTube channel. Throw us a subscribe, some likes, share around the videos. If you like this podcast, you're going to love what we're doing at Recon. And the Q&As are being made available to Recon Pro and VIP ticket holders, as well as our lovely patrons. And on that note, all of this work is possible because of the contributions of our sponsors, patrons, and listeners. If you like what we're doing and you want to see it grow, I'll ask you to do something within your means. If you're financially stable and self-supporting, we'd love to have you become one of our patrons. We offer a ton of different perks, ranging from our lovely Discord channel to more elaborate things like the Spoilers Club. This month, we're playing and discussing Escape from the Maze of the Minotaur by Solvar Shirts. Anne and Chris Lukeman, the creators, were on Season 1, Episode 4 of this podcast. And if backing us on Patreon is something out of reach, we totally get it. Consider dropping us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or sharing an episode with someone that you think will love it. Help us grease the algorithms. There are lots of ways to support our work and we appreciate you no matter how you choose to help us out. And on that note, we're gonna take a moment to thank some of our biggest Patreon supporters. Paula Swan, Rex Miller, Breakout Games, Derek Tam, Byron Delmonico, Scott Olson, and Wesley James. None of this work would have been possible without the support of our incredible community. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to join the ranks of our community of supporters, you can learn more at patreon.com slash room escape artist. The Reality Escape Pod is produced by Lisa Spira, edited by Steve Ewing of Stand Inside Media, and brought to you by RoomEscapeArtist.com, your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content and events. I was traveling to Kentucky for a wedding for my husband's friend, and my husband had to go to the sort of rehearsal of the ceremony and I was going to be joining him at the rehearsal dinner, but I had about two or three hours to kill by myself. And so, of course, I went to see if there was an escape room in the area. And I thought this was going to be my opportunity to solo a room because there, there was basically one escape room that was in the area. And I didn't expect it to be particularly good, but there was one room that didn't have a booking at the time, so it was like, great, I'm gonna go try and solo it for the first time. I made the booking, and then they called me about a half an hour later saying that I couldn't play this room by myself. And they said, the minimum is four people, but there's this other room which has a group booked in, so you can join them if you want. So I said, all right, didn't super wanna play with a bunch of strangers, but I didn't have anything else to do in Kentucky, so I went. Dressed for a rehearsal dinner, wearing like a fancy dress, and here I am at this escape room with a group of teenagers who's booked this room, (laughs) and I'm pretty sure that for the first half of the game they thought I was a plant, because (laughs) they didn't realize that there was gonna be another person playing with them, so they definitely regarded me with suspicion 